So I have uh, two irrational fears in life. Actually, I have one irrational fear in life, which is going downhill fast. My other fear, incidentally, is porcelain dolls, but I think that one's perfectly rational. Um, it, yeah, it, you laugh, but if you let one of them into your house, they watch you sleep. I assure you of that. Creepy little harbingers of death. So I'm afraid of going downhill fast. I've been afraid of it my whole life, that, that horrific feeling of falling that some of you pay for on a semi-regular basis at places like Universal. Uh, for me, on a scale of one to death, that's like you know being chosen for the Hunger Games. And so my mom, uh, when I was growing up, my mom and her boyfriend decided that they're gonna help me get over my fear of going downhill fast by forcing me to ride a roller coaster. And so, uh, yeah, <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, so we went to Kennywood Park in Pennsylvania and they put me on a, a, a water coaster called the Log Jammer, which is gentle uh, as far as roller coasters go. It doesn't even have seat belts. You don't really need them. It's not, they don't warrant that. Um, and so they, they seated me strategically second in the log. Uh, so my mom's boyfriend was front, so I didn't see, you know, the plummet. Um, and then me and then my mom, so sandwiched in love. Um, and then we had to ride with three other people that we didn't know because the log seat six and there were only three of us. Um, so we get on we get on the log jammer and, and we begin going toward that first hill and then I hear that click click you know what I'm talking about when the cart locks into the chain that indicates your impending death um, so so it clicks in and I'm just listening to that god awful sickening click 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 and it reminds me to anticipate the fall and as I begin to anticipate the fall I also begin to wet myself uh, it's okay you can laugh I was just a kid uh, like 15 16 only. Um, <laughs> And so as I'm peeing, my mom realizes what's happening and she stands up and she's like, Wah! and then the people who are behind us that we don't know see the yellow tide rolling toward them and they all stand up. Ah! And then, then we get to the top, right? And our weight shifts. And so it comes back down the other side and everyone's standing up. Wah! So it was awful. And uh, in, in the chaos and uh, the commotion of, of that moment, the actual fall kind of slipped by me without, uh, with minimal agony, I think. It, the anticipation of the fall ended up being worse than the fall itself. So this is generally my response to fear and anxiety. I'm a, I'm a worrier by nature. I worry about everything. I worry about how much I worry. Um, I worry about when, when I see danger coming, I, I worry, I try to worry my way into a solution. Or I try to worry my way into a reality where there won't be any falls, but it doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work. It just means I experience all of my pain twice. I experience it the first time as I anticipate the fall, and then I experience it again during the fall itself. But sometimes, sometimes the fall doesn't even come, right? Sometimes the, the cart changes course unexpectedly, and then I've just experienced this unnecessary self-inflicted pain by straining my ears to listen for that click, click, click. So this morning we're going to be talking about the experience of Advent through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the more that I have studied this passage, the more I am continually impressed with this young girl who had none of the resources available to me, none of the potential for self-sufficiency, and yet she willingly embraces a call from God that will expose her to incredible uncertainty and personal risk. I don't have that level of faith in God, that level of peace with whatever he deems best for me, but I want it. I want it. I've wasted hours of my life listening for that click, click, click. Hours that I could have spent reading books I enjoy that aren't for sermon prep, and hours I could have spent going on dates with my husband or you know, blowing raspberries on my daughter's belly. I can't get any of those minutes back, but I want them. But how do we turn that corner? 
How do we become people who don't run from discomfort so fast that we can't see there is a blessing bundled up in the middle? How do we embrace uncertainty with courage? Just once, I want to look at a situation that's challenging and extrapolate out to all the best case scenarios instead of the worst ones. And I know I justify it by saying I'm just exercising wisdom, but wisdom is knowledge applied, not knowledge despaired. So I at least have a lot to learn from Mary's response to God, uh, and I'm hoping that maybe this will be helpful for some of you too. Our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 1. The gospel writers had an immense amount of source material to choose from, and so each one had to decide what to include, what to exclude, what facet of Jesus' character they wanted to put on display for their gospel. And for Luke, the theme seems to be love. God's love, and not just for his bride, the church, but for each individual within that church and a wide variety of individuals. His genealogy of Jesus begins with Adam, not with Abraham, which is significant of the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation history. He gives us Naaman the Syrian, the, the, the good Samaritan, the Roman centurion, foreigners, Mary and, and Elizabeth, this young girl and this old woman. Luke has a deep interest in conveying God's love for all people, regardless of their credentials, the, 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 the fierce, personal love of God. Luke's gospel is also a singing gospel. In it, we find the Magnificat, Mary's song, which we'll be looking at today. We find the Benedictus, which is Zechariah's song when his son John the Baptist was circumcised and when he was allowed to talk again. We find the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon's song, when the old man first beheld the baby Jesus in the temple. Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The verb rejoice occurs more in the Gospel of Luke than it does in any other New Testament book. It is a gospel of love and hope and joy, but it begins with a very dubious announcement. Many of you know this story. Mary's a young teenage girl, no older than 15. She's engaged to a man named Joseph, and she's visited by an angel who tells her that she will conceive of the Holy Spirit and that her son will be called Son of the Most High God. And she willingly embraces that call, and that initially sounds like great news, but we have to consider the circumstances here. The, the social norms were incredibly different in first century Palestine than they were today. Women were considered property of their fathers, and then later on their husbands. They could be given or leveraged in business transactions or to pay a debt. Also, Mary's pregnancy was to occur before her wedding to Joseph. And, and, and we know from Matthew that, you know, Joseph received a dream telling him this, this child is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take marriage or wife. But there was a gap. You understand there was a gap between when Mary was found to be pregnant and when Joseph received his prophetic dream. And not only that, there was no promise ever made to Mary that Joseph would even receive a prophetic dream. She didn't know it was going to happen. And so when she agrees to this arrangement, willingly, faithfully, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done unto me as you've spoken. The danger of what she has just accepted is gravely serious. Mary must accept to be marked forever with a scarlet letter. And we know her character to be pure, but she will suffer social scorn for the rest of her life because it appears that she has been unfaithful. She will, she will forever be called the mother of a bastard child, and to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary must accept the possibility of the loss of Joseph's love. We know from Scripture that he loved her, and she knew. She knew this was going to break his heart. 
She had to accept the possibility, indeed the probability, that he was going to divorce her and that she would be left to fend for herself and her unborn child in poverty and shame. And to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary has to accept the possibility of her own lawful death. The book of Deuteronomy called for death by stoning of a woman who committed Mary's perceived sin. And to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. So in the midst of this hanging over her with questions and uncertainties, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who the angel tells her is also pregnant under different but equally miraculous circumstances. And when she arrives at the house, there's an interaction between these two women where Elizabeth prophesies and Mary begins to understand it's confirmed for her the truth of what the angel Gabriel has said to her. She understands this wasn't a dream. This is happening You are going to conceive the Son of God. You will receive this blessing, and it may cost you everything. And in that moment when, no doubt, she the the, the full magnitude of what will happen, what she'll have to give up, what pain she'll have to face, is impressed upon her mind and her heart. In that moment, she begins to sing. In the face of uncertainty and in danger, Mary sings. And she says... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is God's word. In the face of danger and uncertainty, Mary sings a hymn of praise. How I wish that in the face of uncertainty, I would respond with a hymn instead of a dirge. All the paintings and the mosaics of Mary, they capture her gentleness and mildness, and and she was those things to be sure, but, but she is also one of the bravest individuals that we see in all of Scripture. Even under ideal circumstances, pregnancy is difficult. And I'm not saying it's, don't get me wrong, it's an immense blessing, but it does cost us something. My daughter Ember was the easiest blessing I've ever received. We discontinued birth control, Rob raised one eyebrow at me suggestively, and then we had a baby. It all happened... Very, very fast. And since having Ember, not not because of, but since having Ember, my health has gone through some significant changes. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I I turned 35, which puts me in that category of high risk. Should we try to get pregnant again? My body's just not what it used to be three and a half years ago, nor my ability to recover. So, So all of this considered, while I knew that we wanted to have another child, I really agonized over whether it should be through me trying to get pregnant or, or instead through adoption. I have no way of knowing how well I'll tolerate pregnancy or, or the recovery from surgery. So I just wasn't sure that I wanted to try. But then about six months ago, Rob and I talked it over and, and we decided, you know what? We're just gonna give this a shot. We're gonna, we're gonna try, we're, we're gonna trust God to get us through whatever this process looks like for us. And so we started trying again. And every month, because it was so effortless with Ember, I kind of expected that I was pregnant. Every month I'd get to that point where I'm like, you know what, I think I'm pregnant. I felt a little nausea. I didn't like the smell of that onion. I had a dream 
that I gave birth to a Pomeranian. I must be pregnant, you know? And every month when I would be convinced of this thought, I would then begin to completely freak out. Rob, I don't know if I'm ready for this. You know, I'm, I'm so beat up, I'm 35. Like, we're, Ember's still kind of the bully of her daycare. We haven't gotten that figured out yet, you know? We're always so busy. I don't think we're good parents. Oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Ah! And then, you know, I'd look over that text message and wonder if I should have saved it for an in-person conversation. <laughs> So every month I thought I might be pregnant, and every month when the test would come back negative, I would be heartbroken. Even though hours earlier, hours earlier, I was completely freaking out over the possibility that this was a terrible decision and second-guessing what we decided. It's like I didn't even remember those feelings. Every time I'd look at that test and it showed me a minus sign and just burst into tears. And poor Rob, who was like clinging to the side of this emotional roller coaster for dear life that I'm riding, you know, would try to comfort me and say things like, well, you know, uh, you said you weren't sure that you wanted to be pregnant again, so, you know, maybe this isn't the worst news, right? And I'm like, why do you hate babies? <laughs> yeah, I sent him some real mixed messages. If there are any other husbands in this position in the congregation, I, I, I tried to think of an analogy that would help you to relate to the mysterious and abrupt ebb and flow of emotions. Let's say that you're a, a Cleveland Browns fan, right? <laughs> and your record is hypothetically 0-12. And, uh, and, and, and you know that your team is playing the Steelers later this month, and you think, you know what, you're, you're a little strapped for cash, and you, know, you think, you know what, as much as it breaks my heart, I'm going to bet against my team. I'm just going to put some money on them, so at least when I have to watch them lose, it, you know, at least I'll have a little extra cash. So you place your bet. And then lo and behold, the Browns begin to win. And then they, you know, they do better and better, and then they pull it out with a field goal at the end of regulation, and everyone in the entire world is surprised. God Almighty is like, well, how about that? <laughs> Understandably, in the last few minutes of that game, your, your feelings were conflicted. You were delighted to see that, you know, your team finally begin to win, but you knew that it was going to cost you something. That's kind of where we're at. It's not all of us, some of us, but if we're sending mixed messages, it's because we feel mixed feelings. It's like, yes, yes, I know, this is what I want, but man, man, is it going to cost me. Mary would have been familiar enough with the teachings of Scripture. She would have been rooted enough in her cultural history to long for the arrival of Messiah, the Savior and King of her people, Israel. It is the blessing that she would have longed to receive. So I'm not trying to say that this pregnancy, that this child wasn't uh, more of a blessing than any other. Of course, certainly it was. Certainly there was so much more offered in this child than any other, but the circumstances under which she was to receive this blessing were no less dangerous or frightening to her simply because the blessing was so great. She was still a vulnerable teenage girl. And as any faithful Jew, she had longed to see the consolation of Israel. This is the blessing she'd always hoped for, but she knew, she knew that it was going to cost her. And yet she sings. And so I want to look at some of the reasons why. Mary's song can loosely be broken down into two sections. It mimics the common form of psalms of praise, which she would have been familiar with. She praises God, and then she offers the grounds for that praise. And in the first three verses, this is God's goodness to her personally, present. And in the remaining six verses, it's his goodness to his people, past and future. So if we look at the words of the song, in the first three verses, we see that Mary sings because she has a right understanding of herself and her own need. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
Mary recognizes that she, too, needs a savior, that she, too, will be saved through the grace and the power of the child she carries. Mary's response and her, her song embody an incredible humility, an incredible humility. And this isn't self-effacing. This is just a, a, a confident and correct understanding of her position in relation to God. Romans tells us there is no one who does good. No, not one. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your credentials are, who your family is, how good you manage to be. Mary was probably the best of us. She, she was the mother of Jesus, but she knew she could get it wrong. Do we know that we can get it wrong? You know, when you, you want to mend that relationship, but you can't stop being mean because of the time that they messed up big. Do you know your own need? When you buy that drink with cash because you don't want her to see it on the credit card statement, do you know your own need? When you call in sick to work because you are just so sad that you can't pull yourself out of bed, do you know your own need? And I know these might seem like things that are not that big that we can handle it, that this, this really can't warrant a savior, but listen, it's, it's not really about the drinking or the resentment or the depression. If it were just about that, maybe we could handle that, but that is not the cancer, that is a symptom. The cancer is much deeper. It's the belief that dates back as far as the Garden of Eden that we don't really need God. You know, we like him, we'll say our prayers to him before dinner, we'll make him a little space on Sunday, but we don't need him. That, that lie. Pride is killing us one small decision at a time. It's why Christmas had to happen. It's why he had to come. It's why he let us kill him. Do we know our own need? Even in Mary's righteous response to God's call, she knows that she needs a savior. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. Even the strongest person you know cannot save themselves. Without Jesus, we are without hope. She will be the mother of God, but she too knows that she must submit to his authority. If I ever hope to respond this well to anything in my life, the first step is having a right understanding of my own need. Humility in the knowledge that I cannot do it on my own. Parenthetically, we see the same humility in Elizabeth, too, who, who she's visiting. Now, Elizabeth had endured years of scorn. Because uh, even though we know she's a good and righteous woman, she hasn't been able to have children, and she's an old woman, and she has no kids, and in that society, that was thought to be a punishment for sin from God. And so, I can't go into all the details, but, but, but God gives Elizabeth a child, John the Baptist, and she's about six months pregnant when Mary shows up to visit her, and she cries out when Mary enters the house, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, now. Elizabeth has reason to not be delighted by this visit. She is finally having her moment. She's an old woman, and God has opened up her womb, has removed her disgrace, and now her fresh-faced little cousin comes twirling in with a baby bump. She had reason to be bitter over it, but she wasn't. Genuine humility and delight. There's no bite of sarcasm in her voice. It's not like, you know, when your sister announced that she was pregnant a week after you announced that you were you know that it's because everything is a competition with her. And so when she comes over, you say, well, why am I so favored that the mother of our Lord should come to me? <laughs> it's not like that. 
with, with Elizabeth, it is genuine humility and delight. Mary sings these three verses because she has an understanding of her own need, and it produces humility in her heart. Then Mary goes on to sing the remaining six verses about God's goodness to his people, past and future, and she sings this because she has a right understanding of the character of God. Mary's song is dripping with references to the Old Testament. She sings... His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And you can hear Deuteronomy in those words. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. She sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And you can hear the prophet Ezekiel, remove the crown. The lowly will be exalted and the high brought low. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel, and you can hear Isaiah, but you, Israel, my servant, I will strengthen and help you. Do not be afraid. She sings, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, and there you can hear the voice of Yahweh in Genesis. I will establish my covenant with Abraham as an everlasting covenant for him and for his descendants after him. In the face of certain pain, and of trial and of disappointment of every kind that will come as a result of her predicament, Mary sings because she understands the character of the God who has brought her to this moment. See, Mary doesn't isolate her own story. She connects it to the story of salvation history, the, the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are her promises too. When the shepherds come and visit the baby Jesus, and they talk about the things that the angels had spoken about them. It says, Mary pondered these things in her heart. And that word in the Greek, to ponder, means to put into context, to piece it together. Mary had dug into the word of God to understand who he was. And now she's putting the pieces together to better understand what he is really like, what he intends to do. The second part of her song is prophetic. It's not just what he has done, but what he intends to do, what he still will do through her and through the child that she bears. Mary has confidence that God will be true to his character, even in the parts of her story that are not yet written. Even in the parts that are not yet written. One of the most frequent calls in scripture is to remember, and I think this is because human beings have an incredible ability to forget we forget mostly the good stuff, too. We remember all the bad. We have no longevity of memory for what God has done in and through us. And we call foul on God anytime something goes wrong in our lives as though this one incident is the only information that we have about him, his character, and how he feels about us. If, if we want to be people of courage, if we ever want to be people who embrace the rigors of life with, with ferocity, if we ever want to stop straining our ears to hear that click, 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 then we have to stop being people who read only half a book and then blame the author for not resolving the plot. Because when it comes to the story of God, there is no use in believing any of it if you're not going to believe all of it. If we are to be sons and daughters of God, which is what Jesus Christ makes us, then we must admit into our history the rest of the story. And it's so much more than our few and limited years here on earth. We must admit into the story the manna from heaven. We must admit into our story the healing of the leper, the resurrection of Jesus, because it tells us who we are, who God is, and how he is with his children. 
Mary doesn't assume her story is disconnected from the whole of salvation history. When she ponders these things in her heart, she includes evidence from ancestors hundreds of years distant from her, and that is incredibly important because if we don't connect our story to the whole story of God, we will never understand what he is really like. If we shorten the timeline, we will never see how faithfully he keeps his promises, and if we don't see how faithful he is, we won't have the courage to go where he calls us, especially when where he calls us is risky. We'll never have a chance to see there is an incredible blessing bundled up in the middle. If we shorten the timeline, we don't see he's faithful. God's promises don't time out, do you understand? It's not like when John Parker says, hey, I promise, I promise I'll give you back that copy of Out of the Silent Planet, but after 18 months, you know he's not going to, and he knows that you know he's not going to, and so, you know, you stop asking, and he stops making eye contact and strategy, and eventually you both forget. <laughs> this is all hypothetical. God's promises don't, they don't time out. He doesn't forget them. If we look at the whole of history, we will see he has fulfilled them, that he is fulfilling them still. And the better we understand his character, the more courage we will have to follow him when he calls us to go. And listen, I know we're going to get it wrong sometimes. Mary got it wrong sometimes. She shows up to, to haul Jesus off by force with a bunch of his brothers when he's saying and teaching some things that sound a bit crazy. They, they try to interfere with his ministry, the ministry that's going to be salvation to the whole world. Mary had great faith in the promises of a God whose character she knows, but even she sometimes misunderstands how he's going to fulfill them. Yeah, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to get it wrong sometimes, but we don't have to be afraid of that. And we, we cannot let that keep us from saying yes to God, even when he is calling us to something frightening, even when where he calls us to go is so uncertain. We can't let it keep us from saying yes, because we don't know who's depending on us saying yes. Where would we be if Mary hadn't? Where would we be? There are times when I am so grieved by what feels like the limitless sorrow that we have to endure in this world. When my friend went to the hospital pregnant with two boys but brought home only one. When my brother died of an overdose, when my mom's friend lost a daughter who was kidnapped and trafficked, I get so angry. And for a minute, I hate the fact that Jesus isn't back yet, that we have to endure one more day, one more minute of this bent creation that seems soaked in our tears. But listen, the best way for me to honor their pain, for me to honor my pain, all of the tears that have been shed is to not let any of those tears be wasted. Each of those tears represents time. He's giving us time. Jesus is delaying his return because there's not a single one of us that he is willing to give up on. He will return, I promise you that. He is coming back, and, and, and Christmas is not the last time we will see him arrive. He is coming back in power and glory to wipe away every tear and to destroy every remnant of evil, but he longs to do that in a way that doesn't destroy us with it. He's giving us time. Time to get home 
and to bring as many people with us as we possibly can. What's true for Mary is still true for us. God is still breaking into the world through ordinary human beings. We are his plan A, and there is no plan B. Christmas is about Jesus arriving into this world to give us hope where we once had none, and he's still doing it, you understand? But he's doing it through you, and he's doing it through me. And we honor every one of those tears by using what the enemy intended for evil to bring about his undoing. And listen, I know that when we really do understand our need, when we really do come face to face with our lack of faith, with our shortcomings, with all the ways in which we fall short, I know that it can seem an impossible calling, but I want to ask you to spend the rest of this Advent season getting to know his character. Dig in. Learn about him. Admit the rest of the story into your existence. Do your best to ponder it and to piece it together like a frightened teenage girl once did. And then maybe, maybe you and me can become people who look at this calling and sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you arrived. Thank you that you still arrive through broken people and that you don't demand that we be perfect, Lord, but that you use us just as we are broken, loved, and covered in your grace. And Lord, we confess that we often choose comfort over blessing, that we often run from the challenges that you call us to because we're afraid, we're afraid of the outcomes, we're afraid of being found to be a failure, we're afraid of being a disappointment. So Lord, give us courage. Give us the will to look deeper into your word to begin to admit into the story the rest, of, the rest of what you've done for us and for our ancestors and what you still will do. Lord, let us be people who become courageous, not because we're no longer afraid of the future, but because we know we have you with us in it. Lord, make us people who respond to your calling with a song. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.